Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word, and my servant will be healed. Our gospel today is a tough story on several sides. One big reason is it's about relationships, an area in which we humans sometimes have difficulty. In this story, it's helpful to know about Roman centurions, Jewish elders, and slaves, and their relationships with each other. We might all agree that human beings are curious creatures. On the one hand, we are created in the image of God, a little less than the angels. So we have great capacity for good. On the other hand, we also have the capacity for doing things that are simply not consistent with being created in the image of God. As Paul says, all of us have fallen short. Maybe it would be easier if folks fit nicely into groups labeled good people and bad people. That way we could avoid the bad and hang out with the good. But that doesn't work either. Because good people can surprise us by doing terrible things. And bad people can startle us with their capacity for generosity. I admit, I want this to be a feel-good story about a young slave, a real go-getter, who happily serves his master and is treated well in the household. But the truth is, I have to be careful about romanticizing the situation. I have to remind myself that this could be an ugly relationship. The story of a slave, probably young, being exploited by someone who has power over him. In the days of Roman domination, the centurion would have had the right to do anything regarding his slave. The slave was a piece of property. The Roman household in the Hellenistic world was, of course, headed by a man. It also included family members, extended family, slaves, and sometimes clients of the powerful household head. This centurion was powerful. He governed an army of a hundred men, and he had been generous to the synagogue. He spent money on it. Did he sincerely give, or was it politically motivated? Sure, the Jewish people had to obey him, but with a little encouragement, things could go smoother. So we don't need to romanticize him as a good character nor should we villainize him either. As we delve into this passage in Luke, we are told from the beginning that after Jesus had finished his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Well, the sayings were referenced to the Sermon on the Plains, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's version. So Jesus had just recently given instructions for his ministry. Love your enemies, blessed are the poor, and much more. So now in Luke and Acts, the writer wants us to see how that can be played out. 
Many stories will follow this one in Luke, which will support the miracles of Jesus and how to treat others. It may be helpful to view our story of the centurion of his request to heal his slave through this lens. It would have been obvious to Luke's readers that allusions were being made to the story from 2 Kings of Elisha's healing of Naaman. Both stories have a Gentile, military man, making a request for healing from a prophet of God. Other similarities are the request is made through emissaries and the healing is done from a distance. The difference is important. The centurion in today's gospel is willing to follow whatever Jesus instructs. Naaman initially rejected what the prophet Elijah said. For Luke, this contrast reinforces that Jesus is a prophet, yet more. He is the one that God has raised from among his people. The centurion accepts this. We learn that this centurion likes this servant, whether it's because they have some kind of relationship that goes beyond master-servant, or because the servant is particularly skilled. Either way, the centurion cannot shrug off the man's severe illness. He wants him healed and restored. Because of the cultural and religious divide between Gentile and Jew, the centurion does not presume to approach Jesus directly, but through mediators. So he orders a detachment of Jews to go to this wonder worker named Jesus he has heard of. Again, a foreigner ordering around some of his occupied subjects could be viewed dimly until those folks catch up with Jesus and speak so well of the centurion, and they sound sincere in doing so, that the reader begins to understand that despite the fact that this centurion represented an occupation by Rome that the Jews despised, this particular leader had earned respect, even affection from the people. He even lent a hand in building up the local synagogue. So Jesus responds immediately. But word travels faster than Jesus' feet because well before he gets to the centurion's residence, the centurion finds out Jesus is en route and so sends back word to stop him. Using an analogy from his own military experience to tell Jesus he can do what he needs doing from the sick ser- for the sick servant by remote control, and so need not enter the centurion's home. Again, we can't be sure what exactly might be going on with the centurion. Maybe some of the Roman officials had gotten wind of this kind treatment of the Jews and his deference to their religion. And they certainly didn't like hearing that kind of thing. And if those same folks found out that this soft-on-Jew centurion also played host to a Jewish messianic wannabe who was causing a stir in Palestine, well, that would not sit very well either. So maybe the centurion calculated that it would be easier to keep this Jesus person at bay. Well, that would certainly be a credible way to think of this story were it not for Jesus' own exceptionally positive reaction. As we are told, Jesus never meets this man, but from a distance praises the intensity of his trust and of his faith. Jesus marvels over the fact that even in Israel, he seldom, if ever, ran across such belief, such trust, and faithfulness. We are told the servant got better just then and just like that. 
No words are recorded of Jesus to send forth his healing, nor do we see Jesus praying to the Father that this be accomplished. Apparently it was all internal to Jesus himself. How curious is this? The potentially cynical or suspicious ways to view the story all evaporate in the end. What we end up with are three people. Jesus, the centurion, the sick servant, who have a very significant encounter with each other. So special, it is worthy of inclusion in the gospel. And yet they never lay eyes on each other, never shake hands, never speak in person. Who would we say the gospel is for? Who does Jesus heal? How does Jesus heal? One of the hardest ideas to grasp is that the way we look at the world in which we live determines what we see. For example, it seems like our world is filled with tragedy. Children killed by abusive and neglectful parents, human trafficking, wars that have been going on for years. Storms and disasters that leave families grieving and homeless. It is devastating to read. If that becomes the primary focus of what we see in this world, it's easy to believe that the world is a place of suffering. And it can be easy to think that God must be a fantasy. There are others who seem to take completely opposite approach. God is the only reality they see, and so they tend to minimize the suffering and tragedy in the world because they assume it's part of God's plan. They see miracles everywhere. These miracles serve as proof that God directly intervenes in everyday lives, from grades in school to love lives to careers to finances. If God as a miracle worker is the primary focus of what we see in this world, it's easy to believe that the world is good and our lives are exactly what God intends for us to be. From this perspective, suffering is the fantasy. There may be a problem with our faith if only based on what we see. If we need some kind of miraculous sign or wonder in order to believe in God, we are always going to be dependent on another miracle to bolster our faith. That's why even Jesus refused to work miracles for the people who came to him looking for a sign. I think our lesson from the gospel presents us with a different approach. Faith as a deep conviction within that doesn't need any external confirmation. Think about it. A story of some Jewish leaders coming to Jesus and asking him to heal the servant of a Roman centurion. Apparently this wasn't an ordinary centurion because he'd been very kind to the Jewish people. But on the way, the centurion sends word that he is not worthy to have Jesus come to his house, but that if he would just say the word, his servant would be healed. The centurion had faith that Jesus could just say the word and heal his servant. It's not surprising then that Jesus said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So is this the faith that we should have? Is it a decision you make no matter what the circumstances of your life? Believing that God is utterly faithful, that God loves us no matter what, and that there is nothing that can separate us from that love is a conviction you have to choose. And it makes all the difference in the way you see the world around you. 
I don't think this kind of faith ignores tragedy in the world, but this kind of faith also does not surrender to the tragedy in the world. Not needing any kind of supernatural intervention without looking for signs and wonders. This kind of faith believes that God is always working in our lives for his good purposes to bring peace and wholeness and joy and life to all of us. And when we believe in God in that way, with all of our heart, we can see the goodness and beauty and joy in the world, despite the tragedy and suffering. The centurion teaches us about the faith that doesn't need to see or touch. Beyond this, because the centurion's faith was so profound, God's graciousness was extended to the least member of the culture, the slave. Both the Jew and the Gentile are invited to the table. Social standing, position of power, a free man or a slave, none of this makes any difference to Jesus. The religious people in this passage approach Jesus claiming that he should help a man because he has done something to deserve that help. But according to Christ, the non-religious man has a greater faith than anyone else in the entire Jewish nation because he understood that despite his worldly status... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed.